Hi everybody, today is Thursday, February 23rd, 2023, and welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's Neuroscience Research Podcast. Today we're talking to Zoe McElliott from the Bowles Center of Alcohol Studies and Departments of Psychiatry and Pharmacology at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, where she is Associate Professor. Zoe's research is on brain mechanisms of affective disorders like anxiety disorders, depression, and substance abuse, uh, substance Use disorders. Use disorders, and uh, I think today we will be talking mostly about uh, substance use disorders, uh, really about alcohol, I hope, but who knows, it'll go wherever it goes. Welcome, Zoe. Thank you so much for letting me be here today. I'm very excited. Also today uh, with us is Matt Warnett from UTSA's Department of Neuroscience, Developmental and Regenerative Biology, repeat participant in the podcast, and a generally knowledgeable person about brain mechanisms of lots of different things. That's a lot, but howdy. <laughs> and me, I'm your host, Charlie Wilson. So Zoe, I'd like to start by getting some of your thoughts about alcohol, and not really about alcohol abuse disorder, about the but rather the mechanism of action of alcohol in the brain. And so uh, it seems to me that the effects of alcohol on the brain have been studied forever, in every possible way, and that uh, and we still don't have a definitive answer. Mm -hmm. And what makes it interesting isn't that we haven't failed to find a mechanism of alcoholic effects. It's just that we have found too many of them. Everything you can imagine, every neuron type, every pathway, every neurotransmitter, everything that you try alcohol on, it alters something and it has an effect. And so we are frustrated by having too many answers. And we have to somehow sort through them and pick the ones that are responsible for something. And of course, alcohol has lots of different effects. We have to pick one. But let's pick the addictiveness of alcohol, for example. How would we, how do you think we ought to go about trying to break out of this conundrum of having too many answers and none of them really address the particular problem? Oh, it is such a hard question, Charlie. Um, as you said, alcohol. If you probably polled 200 alcohol researchers, those even that study uh, the reinforcing properties of alcohol or alcohol use disorders, and you ask them what alcohol did in the brain, they probably will give you 200 different answers. Um, some of them will give you the same answers, though. We know that alcohol is going to act as, a, as an agonist on uh, GABA-A receptors. It's going to allow those to open. Those uh, receptors pass chloride current, so those will typically hyperpolarize a neuron, but that's also dependent on the intracellular milieu of those neurons. Um, they will also act on NMDA receptors as an antagonist, and so they do a lot of different things, and those are just two really well-studied um, direct mechanisms of alcohol. A lot of us, myself included, we tend to look at what happens in the absence of alcohol when animals have had exposure to alcohol for a given period of time at a given level, and then look and see what does that do? What kind of changes are occurring after the fact when an animal's in withdrawal from alcohol? Um, so yes, so we, we, we sort of have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to the different mechanisms, the different circuitries that alcohol acts on, um, and, and it's really difficult to disentangle because the, the brain is, is made up of all of these circuitries and how alcohol is acting on each specific bit because the brain gets bathed in alcohol when someone consumes it. 
Um, it's very different than other reinforcing drugs, um, for example, opiates, which act on very select receptors, a very much smaller subset of, of receptors. Um, but even so, in the, that case, those receptors are all over the brain doing potentially different things. So um, it's a really difficult problem to disentangle. So I wanted to have a great answer to your question, and I don't think I have given a great answer to that question. Well, um, so, I mean, one of the challenges with the definition of substance use disorder mm -hmm. as a, you know, the DSM-5 is that it's sort of a, a list of criteria yes. of which you hit. And when yes. you say an individual might be suffering from alcohol use disorder, mm -hmm. that might be different from another person over here who's suffering from alcohol use disorder. And I guess, yes. is there sort of some elements in, you know, looking at the, the differences in the characteristics mm -hmm. of what might be driving an individual yes, to sort of, yes. or what are the, the particular problems? Is that something that we can sort of hone in on and maybe have a little bit more of a, a targeted sort of approach where we're going to look at these neural pathways if an individual is exhibiting these types of behaviors, and maybe we should be focusing on these other pathways if individuals exhibiting another cluster of behaviors. For certain. And, and then taking not even the behaviors, but the genetic background of those people into account too. So, um, so we a lot of times talk about um, reward drinking versus relief drinking as, as a concept, a general concept where reward drinking, somebody is consuming alcohol to have a net positive experience. Now that net positive experience can, is also influenced by the environment that the person's in, the social situation that that person is in. But a lot of times we think about relief drinking as, as a negative reinforcer. So you're drinking to prevent a bad feeling. And there are some very strong opinions in the field as to what the bigger problem is. But I really think it's, it's both and it's going to be very individually related. Um, so if we think about the rewarding side of things, um, there was some really, and I'm going to forget the study author, uh, and I'm embarrassed that I can't remember the study author, but there have been studies done in people looking at um, uh, uh, radio-labeled raclopride. So this is, a, this is a ligand that is going to act on um, dopamine receptors, on D2 receptors, and it's going to allow us to have a proxy view into the dopaminergic system of these, of these people. And they looked at this with a PET scan, looking in the striatum, which is putatively this area that's really important for motivated behaviors. And, and so you think more of the reward-seeking versus the relief-seeking side of things. And these were people who did not have alcohol use disorder, um, were not heavy drinkers, and they looked at their response, so basically looking at their dopamine response, if you will, to a drink of alcohol. And in all of the people, they saw this putative increase in dopamine response. So what that looked like in this study was a displacement of the raclopride from the, the D2 receptor, if you will. But in people who had a familial history of AUD, there was also a dopamine response to the anticipatory signals that they were giving that they were going to have a drink. So there's like a very complex cue environment genetics component that went into that. But I think you're right in terms of um, personalized mechanism uh, or personalized medicine, not mechanism, sorry, personalized medicine to really get into some of these things. So, so looking at the motivations for consuming, I think should be really informative for the treatment strategy potentially down the road. So we have some treatment strategies for AUD. So if somebody is seeking help, um, 
these are somewhat limited, um, but um, one of them is um, giving people naltrexone, for example. So that is going to be an antagonist of the mu opioid receptor. Um, but certain people, certain individuals don't respond to that therapy, whereas other individuals do respond to that therapy. And um, at one point in time, I don't know if he still says this, but Marcus Heilig, who's a very well-esteemed uh, physician and basic science researcher, um, when he was giving a talk several years ago at UNC, <laughs> said something about in the future, every physician's office is going to have a PCR machine so you can understand the people who are coming in, what their, you know, what their genetic makeup is. But I think it's very complicated because with the brain, it's not just your genetics, it's also your environment and the stressors in your life and how, how you first started consuming the substance of choice and things like that. So if I can, please bust it. If I can summarize, <laughs> yeah. uh, what I think you're saying is that the strategy, instead of trying to figure out where alcohol works on the brain, is to pick a brain circuit that, uh, that you think is responsible for a behavior that's altered by alcohol, and then look at alcohol's effect on that brain circuit. So one effect of alcohol is reward. Mm -hmm. But I would think that this, this study that you just quoted doesn't surprise me at all. And it would probably work with strawberries, too. I eat strawberries. I'd get a big dopamine. And if mm -hmm. I love strawberries, I would probably do that when you show me I'm about to get strawberries. So that isn't really quite as incisive as I'd like. But, but, the, the, but the, the problem that you mentioned of withdrawal mm -hmm. yes. seems a lot more to the point. Now, it's not true that everybody who has a use disorder is doing it to avoid withdrawal and that mm -hmm. that's the reason, but no. withdrawal Correct. is a super influential part of the whole thing. Yes. So definitely. if you understood withdrawal, that would be really worth something. So what are the brain... Circuits that are responsible. Oh, what do we know about that? Do we know anything? So, oh, we know. Yeah, we do. Um, and and again, it's not the most perfect, straightforward, or, or easy story. But we definitely think that um, that that there are these these so, quote unquote cycles of addiction, and and there's the there's the preoccupation and anticipation, which I kind of talked about before. Then there's the binge. And then there's the withdrawal period. And then this is sort of this negative downward spiral that people go through. And so there, there have been brain regions that have been very pinpointed as playing a role um, within the negative context. So, so the bed nucleus of the street terminalis, the central nucleus of the amygdala, which were some circuits that I spoke about earlier today, have been heavily implicated in this sort of negative side, the, the dark side, if you will, of, um, of um, substance use disorder, and, and in particular, alcohol use disorder. And, um, but, it's, but it's interesting and, and, and somewhat, you know, the more we look into it, the more murky it gets. So I think we're, we're kind of, um, uh, we a lot of these studies that, that led us down this road were, um, were a little bit, uh, a little bit less nuanced than some of our techniques are letting us get at today. So now we can really dig into specific circuits. So like today I was talking about a circuit where these neurons were expressing neurotensin and we think that this circuit was, was positively reinforcing. So we thought this is much more reward, but these same neurons are also expressing these neuropeptides 
even though they, I, I describe them as neurotensin neurons, they also express uh, corticotropin-releasing factor, or CRF, or dynorphin, which are two neuropeptides that have been heavily um, implicated in, in sort of more of this negative affect, uh, dark side of drinking, if you will. And um, so it, it complicates things because even within the same circuit, you might have elements of a particular neuron that are going to, to play into both the positive side and the negative side uh, of things, uh, or if you look at it that way. Um, so yeah, so you can pick your circuit and look at it, but you might be surprised by the results. So for example, in the circuit that I studied, I was completely surprised by the results I got. I thought that stimulating the circuit was going to make the animals not want to drink, and I found the exact opposite. Now, granted, these were relatively um, not, they weren't alcohol naive, but they had not had a lot of alcohol experience. And the amount of alcohol that I was giving them was a pretty low dose for, for a mouse. So if things had been flipped, if they had been animals that had been drinking a lot or had previously been exposed to a protocol that was going to induce physical dependence on alcohol, things may have looked incredibly different. And so I think, like you said, the more we look, the more complicated it begins to become, which is not exactly so, the best answer to give to people. But I'd like to make sure I yeah, understood what yeah. you said. Okay. So basically, you had a pathway in the brain mm-hmm. you thought was activated during withdrawal, and then you activated it expecting the animals would not want to drink. Mm-hmm. But during withdrawal, people do want to drink. They do want to drink, yeah. So then when you activated it, which sort of mimics withdrawal in some sense, then they did want to drink and you were surprised and I don't understand why you were surprised. Um, so I'm trying to think about how I could talk about this. Um, they, I, I thought initially this circuit would be activated in withdrawal and it still might be, but I'm not sure, right? Because I wasn't putting these animals in withdrawal. So, or, or in withdrawal to the extent, I mean, they, they could be in withdrawal, but to a very low amount of, of alcohol, which isn't necessarily going to create an anhedonic state or a state of dysphoria necessarily. They didn't have the DT. They didn't, yes, right? They weren't, they weren't pushed to that level. Mm-hmm. Um, so these, so I, I initially thought because of, how these neurons were identified and where I thought they were initially going, that they were going to be involved in something that would be, that, that stimulating the circuit would be dysphoric to the animals, that they wouldn't like it. And I found out that stimulating in the absence of alcohol, so this is just stimulating the circuit, that the animals actually really liked the stimulation of the circuit. And then once I did a little bit more work to figure out where these neurons were going and who they were talking to, it suggested that, um, that that they weren't just exclusively talking to this one brain region. They were also talking in a different way, communicating through a different receptor neurotransmitter system to another brain region. And it was vis-a-vis that that they were um, that they were causing this positive uh, or, or this positive valence behavior, as we say, or that they liked this this sort of stimulation. So which neurons are these? So these are these neurotensin neurons that in the central nucleus of the amygdala that were sending projections to the parabrachial nucleus. Yeah. 
Um, and the other place that they sent projections to was so they they don't send well they they send a, a few other places but they send they they probably are influencing the locus ceruleus as well but through different mechanisms so they they're they're talking at least to the parabrachial through a GABAergic transmission situation where they are releasing GABA into the parabrachial which is going to hyperpolarize these parabrachial neurons but they are might they might be influencing another brain region called the locus ceruleus or, or LC through neurotrans or neuropeptide neurotransmitters so you've got a single neuron that has multiple neurotransmission events going on in it and how those neurotransmitters are being released might be distinct based on something like a prior experience with alcohol so we know that um, that stressful situations and sometimes withdrawal can, for, for example, upregulate uh, corticotropin releasing factor. So these neurons contain corticotropin releasing factor, and maybe in that state, they're releasing more of that corticotropin releasing factor into the locus ceruleus, and that could be driving a whole different set of neurons to do a different thing, which we, we think is probably going to um, put the animal into a negative state. So oh gosh, there might be, I don't, <laughs> yeah, and this one neuron, this one neuron is doing so many different, potentially, I should say, potentially doing so many different things. Um, you had some cool tools that you talked about yeah, where you could sort of use to parse out, I mean, because a neuron is not one thing. It yes. can be releasing multiple neuropeptides, classical neurotransmitters, sometimes yeah. multiple variations of the classical neurotransmitters. Yes. Um so how can you actually, what tools do you have yeah. or how can you sort of parse that out? And you have exactly. some data that sort of speaks to that. Yeah, so we have some data that kind of speaks to that. So we, um, we used a, um, a short hairpin RNA, which is going to, um, that was targeting uh, the vesicular GABA transporter. So we tried to do what we call a knockdown of GABA in these neurons. And we were successful at that. We were very excited that we had good data that suggested that that was what it was doing. And so basically, we could take that GABA system offline a little bit. We didn't take it all the way offline, but we dampened it down. We dampened down that GABA system. And when we did that, we saw that it affected how the animals were drinking, that they weren't drinking um, as much alcohol as they were before we dampened down that GABA system. So that suggests that, that GABA, well, first of all, GABA is playing a role in alcohol, which we, we sort of knew, but GABA within this specific neuron is playing a role in alcohol. Um, now, because we did this globally in this neuron, we don't know if it's exactly in that projection. So we actually need to do the converse experiment where we look at the projection and see do we get the same kind of effect. Um, because these neurons, as I said before, they don't just project the parabrachial, but it's one of the places where they project very strongly too. Um, outside of the CEA, it's probably the strongest projection. Um, so we, we do know that we have these tools that we can damage. So we also have some tools to look at these neuropeptides where we could, we could remove them in certain ways, either with a viral manipulation, um, or we could do it or will it all be a viral manipulation? So we could either do it with like a CRISPR manipulation, or we have some flox lines where we could look at these neuropeptides and their receptors and take them out of these specific populations and then really try, try to tease the system apart that way. Um, you always have some confounds with some of these that there might be adaptive changes. The brain is a plastic thing and it might adapt to some of these manipulations. But 
we were hoping that, for example, this VGAP manipulation, because we weren't completely taking the system offline, we were just fine tuning it down, that it wasn't as big of an insult as like, for example, when we lesioned these neurons using the caspase virus, which totally got rid of these neurons altogether. Um, that being said, one of the things we might need to look at, which we haven't, future reviewers, is that um, we don't know when we dampen down that, that GABA system, do we see a compensatory change in our neuropeptides, for example? So this is something that we can look at. We have tools to look at this to a certain degree. Um, or how does that change the local circuitry? You know, Are we seeing increases in, in GABA somewhere else because we dampened it down here? So there's all kinds of compensatory things that could be happening. But it's important to know these compensatory things because even like a pharmacological treatment that might be given to a person, say the naltrexone treatment or something like that, disulfiram, which is another one that's used for alcohol use disorder, um, could be also having these types of compensatory treatments down the line. So we need, to, we need to do the work to figure it out and to try to disentangle some of these things. So when we call something a neurotensin neuron, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of a a bad terminology in a way. Yes, because I agree. It's also a CRF neuron, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And it's also a GABA neuron. And, and a dynorphin neuron. It's a transgenic line you're using. Yeah, it's a, it's that's the a transgenic line yeah. you're using, which you is, kind of yeah. Pick your name, but the name should mm -hmm. not be taken too seriously. Yeah. And, uh, and so that's, um, I think that's a mistake we've made in the past. A lot of them yeah. believing the names we put on things, yeah. even though they're, yeah, exactly. Well, even a dopamine neuron isn't just a dopamine neuron. It's also a GABA neuron and a glutamate neuron, depending on who it is. So we, we as scientists and humans have decided to categorize things, and the brain is smarter than we are, and is like, ha, ha, ha. So the main effect, though, that you've seen of these NTS neurons mm -hmm. is really a, a GABA effect. I'm thinking what yeah. we've seen in our paradigms is a GABA effect, yes. Mm -hmm. but, uh, but the... The things that cause withdrawal, dependency, or whatever, mm -hmm. uh, that develops slowly yes. and isn't necessarily going to be seen in these sort of acute experiments where yes. you're looking at just one volley of action potentials coming down some axon. Mm -hmm. So how do you get at, how do you make a dependent mouse? I mean, that's one of the, the challenges here. I mean, you can interrogate these circuits, yeah. but um, how can you do these things in, in animal models? And yeah. are there good animal models, or are all models bad, but they can just target some minor thing? That <laughs> I don't think, I don't want to say all models are bad. All models are going to ask a very particular question. And I think this is why it's actually good to try to look at things across models and to look at systems across models. So, so for dependence, we usually um, rely on um, vapor models where we give the animals exposure to al alcohol vapor at, at pretty high levels for extended periods of time and then we put them through withdrawal for a period of time afterwards um, and we, we cycle this and this creates what we call a physical dependence on alcohol um, because in the absence of alcohol there are certain withdrawal signs that we can monitor within our animals. Um, most of what I showed today and what, I, what I've done um, in, in this work with this neurotensin story has not looked at that type of level of exposure. I've done uh, moderate drinking and sometimes what we call chronic heavy drinking, which is oftentimes like an intermittent access model where the animals are voluntarily drinking. Um, but with these dependence models, you're pushing the system a lot farther. And we do have work in the lab that is looking at this type of exposure 
especially in the context of, of some things that we know occur both in our rodent models and in our in, in human beings um, with alcohol use disorder is, is a shift in the um, excitatory inhibitory balance within the brain. There's a, there's a shift towards um, overexcitability of the brain, and this oftentimes results in seizures. So, so people who have um, alcohol dependence, when they are physically dependent on alcohol, which you very, very properly said, doesn't necessarily, um, off, it's not one-to-one with an alcohol use disorder. You can have an alcohol use disorder where you're not physically dependent, but that physical dependence requires you to keep drinking so that you don't, or, or a individual keeps drinking so that they don't have seizures, basically, because that overexcitation of the brain um, that occurs. And, and that really is, it's due to the withdrawal. So the, the high levels of alcohol are going to act as a depressant. They're going to enhance inhibition. But then in the withdrawal state, that inhibition is removed. And then you have this overexcitation. And so that's been observed across circuits in a lot of ways. It's in lots of different brain regions. And so it's actually um, a huge part of what we're doing with our current iteration of our center grant at the Bull Center for Alcohol Studies is to really look at this excitatory inhibitory balance across circuits using some of these more modern tools that we didn't have available to us years ago. Um, and to try to pinpoint then which circuits might be the ones that we can tackle down the road, you know? So, so follow up on that, and this maybe gets to sort of older philosophical arguments between Kuba and Piazza, uh, <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, not every... I'm not naming names. Not, not, yeah. not every, you know, human who is going to consume yes. alcohol develops an alcohol yeah. use disorder. And I guess yeah. within sort of the circuits that you've been interrogating and studying, yeah. you know, not every animal is going to be consuming the same amount of alcohol. Correct. Have yes. you looked at, or people sort of actively looking at the heterogeneity of the, the behavioral responding and then mapping that onto potential differences in the dynamics you might see in the circuit, whether it's, you know, in vivo recordings and vitro recordings, is there sort of a look to maybe get at that instead of, you know, making every all animals mm-hmm. dependent or, you know, quote unquote dependent? Yeah, the, the heterogeneity question. Yes, yeah, no, which, which is a great question. It's something that I actually, I love and um, and I have been really interested in in my career. So, the, so, so several years ago, there was a really big push to look at across different genetic lines and recombination of genetic lines of different rodent strains to try to pinpoint various genes that would make a animal more susceptible to drinking more or less or or something like that. And this is something that we've actually seen sort of in our own work where we've had animals that were were more back-crossed or less back-crossed onto your canonical C57 black six mouse, which a lot of us use in research and especially in alcohol research. and, and you can see even within, even within the context of this neurotensin circuit that there were things when the animals were less back-crossed that changed when they were more back-crossed. So we know that there's a genetic component that's contributing to that. And somebody might be sitting at home saying, well, what does this mean for humans? But what this means is that if we, if we can investigate the biological possibilities of what happens, we can have a better idea as to some of these changes, like I was saying, everybody might have a PCR machine in their office one day. You might be able to say, ah, you're, um, you, you know, you've got 
this this um, amino acid substitution here versus here, it's going to suggest that you might fall more into this category. So you know you'd have more of this personalized medicine sort of things. But I do think that's far down the road. But people have looked at this, I think, especially, and you might know this better than I do, within the context of cocaine use disorder and like COMT mutations and things like that, that they know that there are certain um, genetic variabilities that make you more predisposed. I think in terms of alcohol, I'm going to be very bad and say I don't, this probably somebody has looked at this in some way, but there, I don't, I can't think of things off the top of my head right now that would fall down these lines. Um, but I, I'm sure they exist. And so uh, I did bring up in my talk that there has been, uh, within the neurotensin system, there have been polymorphisms in the genetic code for one of the neurotensin receptors that, um, that seem to, uh, to pull out with uh, people who have alcohol use disorder or who don't have alcohol use disorder. Now, unfortunately, these polymorphisms are in parts of the DNA that don't code for the protein. So we can't pinpoint it and then do the mutagenesis study. So it's a little bit more complex. Um, but those pieces of DNA are probably still contributing to something like receptor expression levels or something like that. We just don't know what those are in the humans and what that, you know, how we can look at that exactly in the animals. But we can start to use some of these tools to say, get rid of the receptors or mutate the receptors in a certain way or bias the signaling at the receptor and see if that will answer some of these questions. So that's very long winded. But. <laughs> Well, that's, uh, that sounds very uh, hopeful. I hope. I hope it's hopeful. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's the goal, is to try to help people, you know. and um, Like help us scientists get out of our uh, pit of despair when we can't answer a question. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. This is really Bye. fun. And Matt Wanna, this has been... Neuroscientist Top Shot.